Hello, and welcome to Career Talk with OG, where we empower you so opportunities come to you. Through our series of podcasts, we will give you relevant, practical, actionable career tips and strategies. We believe that through the act of storytelling, we can deliver relatable and authentic talks that allow listeners to gain real-world insight into the career journeys of industry professionals. With our very own Sasson, we bring to you Career Talk with OG. Hello, everyone. Now we are back for another episode of Career Talk with OG. Uh, happy summer solstice. Yes. I actually wish I was in uh, Chichen Itza because I would love to experience that, the pyramids and like the whole shadow thing. But anyways, that's a whole different topic. Uh, today, everyone, I uh, we have uh, my son, David, and today's topic is Brown Pride uh, in honor of uh, Pride Month. And um, we're going to be talking about leadership, but leadership from the perspective of being Latino, brown, and queer, uh, and, uh, and uh, a young uh, professional here. I'm going to let David uh, share with us uh, what he's been up to here in this last year, because if you call, um, David was a guest on Career Talk with OG and Angelica, uh, my daughter, I think it was maybe almost two years ago, a year and a half, two years so. ago. So, uh, David, all right. Uh, why don't you tell us what you've been up to in this last year? A lot of, a lot of things going on. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me for my little <clears throat> allergies that I have right now. It has been a busy year. So I graduated um, in at the end of May of 2022 and with my degree in music education, a minor in ethnic studies. Um, and then I quickly came home. I came home as fast as I could to Mountain View to um, to start doing stuff here. I really was, it was important for me to get back to my community and get back to uh, giving to my community and also creating connections in my community. Because a lot of the, what the work that I do is about building connections and making sustainable change through connection. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what um, what I did initially. From there, kind of took a second to get settled and, and find a job. I think a lot of young professionals, unless you have one lined up, you really go through that process of saying like, what's a good fit for right now? You know, I feel burnt out from school, so I do want a little bit of rest, but also I want to be digging into my career. <clears throat> And so um, kind of waited a little bit. And then eventually through, I'm going to take a sip of coffee. Sorry, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually um, started working on a program at our Title I school in Mountain View. So I think people think of Mountain View as a very white and affluent area. But in fact, it has a long history of having socioeconomically disadvantaged communities here, um, especially of color. And so I wanted to start a culturally um, responsive or relevant program in um in our cashier school which i attended my dad attended uh, my grandfather did well no pop-up went to crittenden never mind but yeah. you know what a lot of people went there yeah. um and so just long in the family history and um it was a spanish a, a program that was both in english and spanish we did um traditional folk music from mexico and whatnot and um i think it was such an impactful program and it was such a lovely chance to work directly with the population that i had been dreaming of working with and one that I had um, connection to and could build connection with. 
Um, and now it's summer and now I'm kind of taking a bit of a little break right here. Not too much of a break, but you know, I'm enjoying my time. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely uh, a lot that's uh, going on here in the year. And, you know, for me, as, as you get, one of the things that I'm really proud of you is you mentioned how you know, in some cases, uh, students have a job lined up, or at least that's the expectation, right? To have something lined up. And and what I've seen you do in this last year is create opportunities um, and really leverage the, the, the passion that you have for music, the love that you have for music, your knowledge, your expertise, uh, and but do it in a way where um, you're also not only growing professionally starting your professional career but also helping others along the way um and i think that's that's something you know to be commended for uh that you're able to weave those those two growing professionally and helping other people uh as well so you know let's let's get into uh the topic here of leadership so i uh, I do I do training, a career and leadership training, and I oftentimes, when I uh, talk about leadership, um, I talk about it from the perspective, and I have to give credit to like my favorite author uh, on leadership, which is John Maxwell, and he he defines leadership as uh, leadership is influence, and that it doesn't matter what your title is or age, et cetera, and so forth. We all have the ability to lead other people, to influence uh, other people. And, um, but then when we add the dynamics of race or ethnicity or, you know, sexual orientation, there are some other challenges, obstacles, barriers, or opportunities, you know, th that we have to seek or, or do things differently. And so today we're going to be talking about being, you know, as we said, um, brown and queer, uh, which is what you are. But um, let's listen let's off first, just generally speaking, when you as a young professional hear the word leadership, what comes to your mind? Yeah. <clears throat> so leadership. So I, I'm a part of the Musician of Color Association, which I helped start in college. Right. And um, it is a org right now that we're pursuing our 501c3 status. And um, there's been a lot of opportunities for leadership within it. And of course, I feel very lucky to have had a lot of leadership opportunities. But um, essentially what the Musician of Color Association is doing, if you boil down everything, our, our mission statements, our values are whatever we're working on, we're working towards a liberationist framework. We're kind of in the camp of like, the abolitionists. I'm not talking necessarily like the abolition of slavery. We are talking about the abolition of slavery, but not necessarily from that time period. It's, it's evolved since then. Um, if anyone's interested, go look up like Mariam Kaba is a great author or Adrian Marie Brown. These are great authors. Angela Davis also someone comes an author that's coming before them. Um, one person that has influenced me greatly in my idea of leadership is actually Paolo Freddi and the ideas of critical pedagogy. He wrote the um, book pedagogy of the oppressed. And it's basically talking about how we live in a society that is structured with people who are oppressed and people who are oppressors, right? And it's talking about how can we embrace our humanity, live into our humanity so that we can dismantle these structures. And one of the main points that he makes in that book is talking about how we need a leadership that is horizontal and in complete solidarity with one another. And to me, and what he ends up outlining at the, towards the end of the book is talking about how 
leadership is about facilitation. So not just influence, but also that we are facilitating connection between people. We are, we are facilitating the influence that we have with others and whatnot. And so when I think about leadership, I, I think about it in that twofold. It's me embracing my humanity and helping others embrace theirs and also facilitating that conversation. And I think that's the thing that I also like, there are obstacles to being brown and queer and or whatever your intersections are, but those are your strengths. I mean, to your, to your point of, of the, <clears throat> the workshops that you have, like those are your strengths as, as, a, as, a, as a leader, as someone who has that nuance. I always think about it as when you are off center from the center, you have a greater vantage point of the entire room. And so that's what I think as leaders, people who are marginalized on the sides, you have a greater perspective to see the challenges that are in the room. And that's just, I mean, that's just one advantage, I think, of being. Yeah. You know what? Let's pause for a second, because I'm going to come back to that point here, what you mentioned of being off-centered. Um, but let, let me go back to what you <coughs> um, said earlier. So you you said that when you think of leadership, uh, yes, it's influence, but it's also facilitating. Is that correct? Is that, mm -hmm. is that what? Um, and what, when you, uh, what do you mean by facilitating? Because I do, I do, I like how you've combined the two, mm -hmm. and, and and I agree with you. Um, elaborate a little more on, on like, or, or maybe some examples of what you mean facilitating. Facilitating what? Discussions, conversations. You know. What, what do you mean? I think the easiest example is is a teaching example. And I, I hope this is resonant for people um, who aren't teachers as well. But um, I don't know if we remember when we would go into grade school and the teacher would have the plan and would just go through the plan, regardless of kind of what you thought. I don't do that necessarily. Not every day as a teacher. Some days I come in with like kids, we're going boom, 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 boom. Sorry. Hang with me. Yeah. But some days I'm coming in and saying, I don't 100% know how to approach this material but we're gonna approach it together. So I become the facilitator. I, it's not that I know more than the kids necessarily and they, or about all the same things. The kids are gonna have some greater knowledge than I do in some areas of that lesson plan. Whether that be how the um, classroom management should go, different behavioral issues or struggles, or maybe they're really gonna love it. And I am facilitating by taking in that feedback and creating a flow, a leadership flow from that. So it's not me coming in saying, I know what needs to be done, but I am working with even kids that are seven, you know, some of them are, are four and five. And every time I make sure that they're having an opportunity to lead the class. I think that's what's nice about music is that yeah. actually sometimes I can take a step back and say, do we just need to have time to chill and connect with each other on mm -hmm. a human level rather than learn music? Because when we relax and connect and are in some ways still doing music we're still learning so that's what i like right think. Yeah. got it okay so it's almost kind of like taking a um a collaborative approach and involving Absolutely. you know in the example that you use involving uh, engaging students to help in their learning as mm -hmm. well uh today okay got it got it okay that makes sense that makes sense um where is there is there a time in your life or an experience where you came up or, or can or can pinpoint to say, hey, this is how I've, I've, I've been taught, but then I was taught this way and this way being this influence and collaborative approach. Is there is there like a time in your in your life where you that you can point back to say someone kind of did something like this and therefore you took it or is this just something that 
in your own professional career leadership growth you've um and the the training that you do uh teaching that you do that you've come up with this approach yeah well i think um you know you got to look at your childhood and i i'm and i think about you and mother and the way you guys raised both hanka and i and you did give us a lot of agency in the ways that we could be tiny humans you never I remember mother would always say like, you know, we don't really baby talk in the family. We don't, we don't, we don't talk down to the kids in the family. We talk to them as if they are adults with just like, you know, the appropriate age, um, age appropriate, like kind of conversation, you know, or whatever their mental development is at. Um, and we talk like that. And I think that at home, that basis taught me that I, as a child, I didn't, I didn't have to like bow to authority in that way, you know, I could have, I had a vested interest in what I was doing. And I, I mean, essentially it built in like some level of worthiness for me to say that like, you know, I feel worthy as a child to, to give feedback to my um, teachers. And I think there's some dissonance, right? When you're starting to give feedback in a system or you are supposed to just listen to authority, you start to have that, that, you know, that marginalizes you. Yes. Queerness is not just, um, yeah, I'm bringing it to Pride book quick. Queerness is not just about, you know, sexual orientation, but it's also a way of thinking, right? You know, we have our queer theory and queer studies. The way yeah. that we think often also marginalizes us. It's not just what we do or what we look like, but the way that we operate. And so, um, so just an interesting point there. But really the point that I, I always come back to is when I dropped out of college the first time, because I dropped out of college twice, the first time, I really felt like a failure in the system. I also had a high degree of imposter syndrome when I was at Chapman. I felt like I didn't belong in the conservatory, like it was a mistake that I had gotten in mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't talented enough. And so eventually kind of when I started on that journey, I started reading literature. I started reading Brene Brown um, and looking at vulnerability and shame um, and kind of going through there. And it's once I started to dismantle that shame of, of and I, I mean, I, I had learning disabilities growing up, right? And so I still always had this thing of, I am not the most educated person in the room or I, um, my ideas are not the best ideas because in some way I'm delayed, a delayed learner. But slowly I began to dismantle this image that I had of myself and was able to step into some level of, of loving myself a degree more that I realized that the education system was also mirroring a lot of the pain. It was, it was reinforcing a lot of the pain that I had been given. Um, and so that's when I started to also read about these educational scholars and whatnot and started to dismantle that as well. But I always say like, it was more so a matter of like, I didn't want to suffer in this lifetime. I didn't want to suffer and just accept the way that things were or the way that I believed in myself. I wanted to expand my thinking and, and be an active participant in my life. And um, I did that through these scholars and I continue to do that through the way that I teach and the way that I lead. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. Um, all right. Well, um, I guess I, I guess your mother and I did do something right then. And... <laughs> <laughs> you always wonder, right? Those of you that are parents, you always wonder, like, wait a minute, am I being a good parent or not? <laughs> so far but, this year, pretty good. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to come back to that point that you made. I forget the, the word that you used, but it's essentially the way in my mind um, I interpret it is like being that outlier, mm -hmm. okay, earlier. And, and so here's my experience is in my experience in having worked in the, in the um, 
in the private sector and the t tech industry. Um, I, I heard a lot about how being different is a competitive advantage. Um, and, and, and if we then take that to what we're talking about, being that outlier, that being that outlier is a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Yet, from a minority standpoint, as a brown person, as a Latino or queer or brown and queer, you know, these intersectionalities, being different in our society, American society, is actually viewed as a negative. Mm -hmm. Okay, like there's deficiencies, there's something wrong with you, mm -hmm. uh, is how society views us. But it sounds to me that, um, well, let, let, let's do let's let's take it here um, to bring it. So, talk about how you this inter intersectionality of being brown and queer. Share with us first, maybe some some challenges or some obstacles that you've encountered and, you know, what you've done to overcome them. And then we'll move into, you know, the, the leadership lessons that you've learned and how that has shaped you today as you are uh, growing professionally and in your current leadership style. So let's start first with Brown being Brown and queer and kind of make some of the challenges. I um I think we need to, to there's a couple of things that are coming to mind and but prior to logging on today um I was going through some of my old essays and this is definitely a point of the conversation where the personal and the political kind of come together you know the personal and, and the professional they're they're coming together because um because these are you know these are elements of our personal narrative that are that sometimes are missing um I would say the and that's why I was looking over some essays. I had some um, different conversations that I had written down with some queer folk and just kind of exploring whatnot. And I think the thing that is probably the hardest is the lack of narrative that we have within the queer community. The brown community, because of, you know, you are, I mean, not always, um, but you are often in a family who are also your same race or your same ethnicity. It yes. is not like that in the queer community, right? You kind of just pop into whatever family you pop into somehow. Someone tell me how that works. I don't know yet. But, you know, so, and you don't have necessarily all of the support regarding um, things regarding sexuality or queerness that you would, like, you have race. And that's just, I mean, that just makes sense. Um, you know, that, hopefully that changes. You know, hopefully we all become more, you know, um, informed about queerness and the different aspects. But I think that's a long kind of trajectory. And I don't think necessarily the movement's actually talking about that necessarily. Maybe indirectly we are. Um, and I think there are some people doing very um, great work individually. Um, but that's all to say is that sometimes we have a skinny narrative, a thin narrative of what it means to be queer that is often shaped by white gay men rather than a more diverse group of people. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we like to talk about Stonewall and we now attribute Stonewall to the, um, the POC drag queens or femmes that were at Stonewall throwing the first brick and whatnot. And now we make sure to talk about uh, Marcia P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. But, you know, then we also have to look at, has our movement continued? Did the LGBTQ plus movement continue to stay as diverse? And, um, you know, I'm still kind of looking into more data here and looking into see, and you know, I'm not a queer scholar. I definitely align myself more with race and ethnicity um, because of it easier, especially with our family background. 
you know, but I do remain curious about the narratives that we have surrounding AIDS activism and like things like ACT UP. A lot of what happened, we lost so many um, POC um, gay men during the time during AIDS, you know, that we don't necessarily think about how we, we as, as queer brown young people don't have these elders to look, look up to essentially, you know? And also yes. thinking about the lifestyle differences between people who were contracting AIDS or not and things like that. And the different, just so many different narratives that were lost during the AIDS epidemic. And I really feel like we don't talk enough about that, you know? And I wonder if, you know, the more like, you know, I, is there someone like me who died during AIDS, you know? You know, yeah. would I have died during AIDS? There's that narrative of like, of I feel like we think so much about survivability and the fear regarding that. And I know, I just know that's something prevalent still today in, in kind of the community, um, which maybe is an unexpected thing to, to people who are not queer and don't think about that. But I think black and brown men are four times more likely to contract HIV than their white counterparts. Like these are still big issues in our community. We kind of claimed that the AIDS epidemic was over once white people got the treatment, but not, yeah. it's still an issue in, in, in POC communities. So just something that like, I think is representative of a lot of the challenges that we have. Yeah. Um, so that's one yeah. thing. Okay. What about, what about in the pursuit of your, um, um, your degree? So I feel lucky regarding my intersections um, as a queer person in the performing arts, because the performing arts are are pretty gay, you know. As, as we say, like they're 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 stereotypically quite quite queer already. Now it was interesting when you're talking about the advantage of being um, of being different. I would not say that is so the case in the performing arts. The performing arts really like to package kind of package little presents and hand them off as as performances, as as films, as essays. And it, they really struggle in diversifying kind of that perspective, right? Because it's that fear, that capitalist fear that this may not make money. But it may not make money because maybe people don't see this as desirable, don't see these perspectives, these bodies, these images as desirable. I'm talking about POC being not seen as desirable right. or, or, you know, queer POC being seen as desirable. And um, so in that regard, that was what I wanted to change at Chapman. I wanted to change some of that narrative. And I talk about there were many a times I wanted to change an imp- interpretation of a song that I was singing. And my voice teacher said, no, that's not that's not how we do it. Or when I wanted to study a couple of things that were a little bit different, write a couple of different essays, things like that. And it was, no, we don't really look at it in that way. And I, I really want to challenge that one day, but it really yeah. comes down to the field itself kind of opening up itself a little bit more. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, it's true. Um, let's talk about leadership now then. And so, I mean, you and Angelica, I mean, you know, your mother and I involved you and Angelica in many of the community outreach community work that we did and you know that's those obviously experiences require leadership skills um and in fact you know leadership skills where you are um again influencing people others uh to buy into your cause or you know whatnot and so forth so it's, it's a lot of grass grass grassroots right mm-hmm. uh work that you're involved when you today, when you reflect on 
leadership as a brown person, as a Latino, and then leadership as a queer, can you share with us where you see some differences and then some similarities or that intersectionality of the two? Yeah, interesting question. Um, because I always feel like people see me as brown first. Um, right. I always feel like people see me as brown first. Um, because queerness throughout, there's different, queerness is an interesting thing because as, as a queer person, people are making choices about ways that they are observing your gender expression. They're not, I mean, they don't, I'm, I'm hoping kind of in these spaces, they're not really thinking about who I'm going to bed with, you know? Um, I'm like, I hope that's, I don't think that's where the narrative is at. So there are, so people, when we think about- By the way, I mean, as your dad, you're still too young, okay? So I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as, as kind of, um, as thinking about more so like, <clears throat> when we talk about gender or, or, or queerness, like we are talking about the way that we perceive people as being traditionally yeah. masculine or feminine, right? And so, and I think that's what's interesting as, as so I identify as a cis or gender queer cis, it depends on the day. Like I, I, I definitely lean more like towards a masculine expression. I don't consider my expression feminine. That's a whole kind of like another kind of thing to think, to talk about. But, um, and so I wonder the ways in which I embody kind of this feminine ideal in people, like what, or not ideal, but like towards this feminine idea, um, instead of being masculine, how that shapes the way that people listen or don't listen in certain spaces. Yeah. Um, what I do know at the very least regarding my queerness is that it does make people uncomfortable to some degree, not in an extreme way. There's a yeah. level of a lack of comfortability. So mm -hmm. as a result of that lack of comfortability, are people listening more? Are people listening less? Is kind mm -hmm. of the case across the country, I feel. In yeah. the city of Mountain View, because of that difference, our spaces that are political, they're listening more because they feel like there's something I don't understand. I think that's what's happening. In yeah. Orange County, you are not understandable, so I will not listen, was Ooh, what I Interesting, felt. interesting. Okay, okay. Yeah. When everyone has kind of the, the idea of, like, they understand more racially, but when it becomes to this deviance of gender and, and these expectations... I think then there becomes this level of unknowing that people can get uncomfortable with. I um, mean, I enjoy it. that lack of comfort. Yeah. Is that the leg up on my part? Because I get to set now the tone about what I'm like, that's leadership, right? That's like leading into the progress. Like saying, I get to set the tone now of what the conversation is going to be because there is no preconceived expectation on the other person's end. Yes. But that takes I, guts. Yes, it does. I, I, I'm, we're going to come back here. I do want to point out, uh, Eric, buddy, thanks for joining us. Uh, by the way, Eric here on the chat, you can see he, um, he he's referencing a point earlier that you made, and uh, he says the need for survivability in the BIPOC and LGBTQ uh, community and the fear that comes from the extinction of leaders within those groups is very real, you know, that you were talking earlier. So thank you, Eric. And, um, and then also we have uh, Jacqueline, uh, who uh, shares, you know, that she has uh, two family members that passed away in, in the early AIDS epidemics and, you know, how times have, have changed. So thank you, Jacqueline, for also joining us here uh, today. Um, 
So that means it's it, worth it, hopping in real quick also too to say like yes the the, the narrative on AIDS has changed, um, and I feel like since again also being Pride Month I should say like you can have HIV and it be undetectable and still live a normal life. We have the medication to also prevent HIV as well. And so just the narrative on HIV has changed. And I think a lot of people don't realize that you can have HIV, have it be undetectable and not pass it to your sexual partner. So that's yes. just worth saying. So look up yes, press, yes. look up the HIV conversation. Yes. Keep your queer safe. <laughs> so, so, uh, um, so coming back to the what we were talking about uh, about uh, leadership here, and um, you mentioned you know you you used Mount View versus say like Orange or Orange County as kind of a, some some examples. One is views like you know views you as someone that one community views you as we we need to learn what he his. Uh, we need to learn um, his perspective, his experiences. And then the other one is like, you know, I don't understand you. So therefore I dismiss you, you know, type of thing. So the question here is, is that how do you have any recommendations on, on how a community that dismisses you because they don't understand you they don't understand your experience do you have any advice for those at the grassroots level or in leadership roles to help that community be open to understanding instead of being dismissive because i don't understand you i think this is a really 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 tough question <clears throat> because it comes down to how loving is your community regardless of if you're the same um, short story. I was on a, I was, I don't remember where I was going, but we were, we we're on our way to San Juan Capistrano to go look at the mission. Um, Cause I'm always interested in kind of the history and stuff and I, whatever. And we we're on our way back and we stopped in the downtown area and there was a psychic there. And I told my roommate, Sarah, I was like, Sarah, we got to go to the psychic. And we got three questions. And my final question to the psychic was, how do I make my community more loving? And funny enough, her answer was, oh, no, you, you can't. You can't make your community more loving. And I've carried this little thought with me since whatever, how many, three years ago. And it's true. You really cannot make your community more loving. You can humanize them and show them the love that you have to offer. But if they're not picking that up, if your community is being resistant to that change, I think you need to evaluate yourself. Do you have the means to leave that community? Do you have the means to set a new path somewhere else? Not everyone does. And if that is the case that you are you are stuck within that community, do your best to try and find your own community, whether that is with people who love you and can see you and respect you in that community. Also online is a great option. Stay safe and make sure that you are being safe. But a lot of people also find community online. Um, and these are kind of ways to mitigate, to reduce the harm as much as possible but when you're in a community of hate and you are struggling, it really does become about surviving. Um, mm. I think about some of my peers who are still in Southern California and some of the more conservative areas of Southern California and how much they struggle and how much just doing any of the work really is depleting. I feel lucky that when I do work in Mountain View, that work and the feeling that I get from that work ends up fueling me more 
Yeah. You know, and so it's, yes. it's really taking take into account where you need rest and whatnot and go at your own pace, I think, ultimately yeah. would be what I would say. But it's really difficult because we can't change minds as much as as much as we're slowly trying to. Yeah. Got it. Got it. OK. Got it. I, OK. I never thought of it like that about, uh, you know, th- that difficulty. And um, I mean, I have, you know, seen and and understand how. In some basically again, because as you know, I'm a very visual person. Basically, the image that comes to my mind right now is how how the type of ground that you plant that seed. And as we know, there's some ground, right? Some dirt that is suitable for a certain type of seed, and other it isn't. And you know, how do sometimes you, you plant this seed where it's just the ground is just not fertile, right? It's like yeah. So, well, um, what I would say too, though, it's I think it's also a matter of our for I mean, if we're talking about the LGBTQ plus or you know queer community, however you want to label it, there's a lot of different labels. I think too, if you're not a part of that community, you know, our seeds are planted. We are born into families that you know it's not like you know we're born into a lot of straight families, more accepting, less accepting. But if you're a person that's kind of out there, I think I think a lot of times people are chopping away at our roots. We're already planted. And we're, we may be able to thrive in that soil, but people are chopping away at, the, at our roots. And if yeah. you are a person who is, you know, surrounding a queer person, I, I, I would say learn, learn about, kind of learn, learn to listen and learn to, to see if you can help without, you know, the stopping of chopping those roots. Give them the agency to do it, but also be their support, you know? And I think we miss that sometimes. You know, we can't, I don't think any, you know, queer, queer people need, need our solidarity too. Yeah. Yes. 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 Um, we have a uh, comment here, and I believe this is actually from Soko, and she says, "David, uh, I love the, this conversation and the work uh, David is doing. David, where do you see your work in five years from now, and how can those of us listening help make it happen?" Donate, <laughs> but no, <laughs> um, we're not ready for donations yet. But when we do, I'll be back. Um, no. In five years, the what I where I see the work, um, we're just trying to get through year one a little bit of our five hundred one c three stuff. We're definitely looking at you know starting slow. Um, I would definitely love to see a greater space for queer BIPOC artists. I think right now my dream is focusing on those queer BIPOC artists because art is a representation of the soul every time, and I want to see our queer BIPOC um, having their soul displayed and fostered and grown. I I want to see more connection. I think that's where I am fearing. I'm fearing that these um, spaces are struggling to be created in a way that is truly meaningful. And um, so I'm just at the, you know, I'm at the very top of the iceberg trying to, you know, climb my way down of just saying, you know, how do we create just a little bit more space and a little bit more understanding and I hope by the time that, you know, in five years that if there's a full foundation, you know, I've, I'm, I'm nearing the bottom, you know, barely starting just to hit the water right there. Yeah, That's yeah. kind of where I hope to be um, is there. And because um, it's a long road, again, yeah. that psychic, you can't make your community loving. Give me five years. Give me five years <laughs> and I there will do it. <laughs> it's a process it's a journey for sure it it definitely is um let me just before we wrap things up i um i want to um talk about leadership uh, 
but from the perspective of how do you do you see any um, uh, differences? And if and if yes, what are some differences in terms of how um, older generations of uh, of let's just for simplicity purposes call them activists? Okay. Mm -hmm. Older generation of activists, the OGs, okay, uh, <laughs> of activists, um, whether it's in the LGBTQ community or in the Latino community versus the younger, your generation, the younger generation of activists, do you see any difference in terms of leadership styles? And if so, can you give us some examples of of, of these differences in, in styles. And I don't mean differences in terms of like one is better than the other. There's just different, okay? Well, there certainly are just different. I, I, I would also say not one is better than the other. I think there has been great, um, great movement on both ends on, on, on activists from just the last 60 years. You know, there's been some great, great stuff. Um, I always say it's not about what we do, but how we do it. I think as, as a society, as a group of activists, we're really good at saying we want equity and we want, you know, we want human rights. We want civil rights. We want all of these different things. We know what to say in that regard. But as activists, I think across the board, we, especially now, we know less about like, okay, how do we, how do we go do that? How do we organize a group of people and, and actually do some, direct action is there a step that we need to do before that is there stuff we need to do during it what do we need to do afterwards kind of getting mm -hmm. that that kind of that framework going of like, what does our activism or how does our activism function what's kind of the nitty-gritty of it we don't really talk about and you know i can't really say i think i think the past to some degree the activism that happened is in the past i think and i of course have a respect for the narratives um and the empowerment that comes from those narratives However, functioning-wise, politically and economically, socially, we are in a very different time than yes. the activism of the 1960s. Very different. Um, and, you know, like, like some studies are showing right now, uh, social conservatism is up. It's at an all-time high. 38% of Americans are identifying as socially conservative. You know, mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's an interesting spot. If we're, we are having a lot, Black Lives Matter, um, the protests of 2020 were three years ago. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing an uptick in, in conservatism. Someone tell me, is the work that we're doing working? And I think mm -hmm. right now, regardless of whatever is the um, of activists of the past or present, we need to be constantly looking on how effective we are being and what is grounding our movement. Um, I know as, as an org, uh, the Musician of Color Association, we are constantly looking at that. We are constantly trying to align ourselves with our values and make sure we are leading with them. Some people say that we take too much time to look at that, but the fact is I'm not doing this so we can start creating direct action tomorrow. I'm looking at it so we can do direct action for the next seven generations. And if that mm -hmm. means in this generation, I focus on collectivizing our values and, and, and organizing us in that way, then I'll take the time to do that. Yeah. Um, I think there was a conversation between Judith Butler and Angela Davis in Oakland and um, talking about intersectionality, and there was a young, uh, a young woman, I believe, who felt like, "What do we do? You know, these these kids, you know, have no space. These queer kids have no space. There's there's no support network. There's no activism for them." And Angela Davis and Judith Butler, you know, they're they're older, 
I kind of took the, the big pause to say, well, I think we need to also look and see, you know, this is a matter of time. All of these things take a lot of time to do and we are still building the groundwork. Now, what felt unfortunate in that conversation between Judith Butler and Angela Davis and that child was that they were telling the child to wait. They were telling the child, wait and good will come. We have made gains and we will make more gains. Mm -hmm. Urgency is real. You know, there is a sense I have waited long enough. My ancestors have waited and I am still waiting. There's an injustice to that. There's an injustice to the waiting that we have to do. Urgency is also a function of capitalism. Capitalism says I need it. I want it now. So I need it now. So I will have it now. Mm -hmm. So there's a balance between creating action and waiting. We we must not be hurried in the action that we are doing. We must make sure that we are rested and that we are full and that our work is fulfilling. Mm -hmm. The moment of the spark, the moment of ignition of that revolution may take our energy, but may it be so that we are rested before we do that. Yes. That's a big thought. That's uh, powerful. Powerful because... Patience is, you know, like the saying, patience is a virtue. And many of us, we live in a society, I call it the microwave mentality, right? That, again, we want things right away. Uh, But to your point, too, is is that as a person of color or, you know, queer, LGBTQ, marginalized group, we've been waiting for a long time, too. And, you know, it's like, damn it, I'm freaking tired of waiting okay Mm -hmm. so we need to make some change so yes um but um there does need to be that i guess i guess it's it's knowing when to go full speed ahead and when to kind of take it back a little bit um yeah it's i think it's also worth saying there's a difference in making change in your your relationships you know like your you know whether that's an intimate partnership whether that's with family you know, you are worthy of that respect today. You've grown up with them. They know you. They probably, yeah. you know, as well as you can, your friends know you. So be worthy enough to ask what you need of them. Yeah. And we'll wait for society to change. But don't be thinking for a second that family ain't also trying to respect you, you know, and give yes. you what you need there. Because I think there are places where we can ask for, yes. for that love and support. Yes. It's just a matter of yes. feeling worthy enough to ask that. And you are worthy. Yes. Everyone is worthy of that love of and support. Absolutely. Everyone... We're all worthy, again, to reiterate David's words of that love and support. So, uh, David, this is awesome. I uh, Again, I'm glad we had the opportunity, um, especially for Pride Month, yeah. and, um, you know, to have you come back on Career Talk with uh, with OG here, uh, for you to share your insights, your perspectives, your views as a uh, young professional uh, in leadership roles and growing your profession, growing your influence, um, and, and really doing it in a very compassionate, loving way to also uplift uh, others out there uh, as well. So, yes, thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for joining us again on Career Talk with OG. Have a fantastic, beautiful rest of the week so thank you everyone fabulous pride weekend if you're doing yes. it go to go to the parade i've never been but i'll go this year so Great. yes 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 <laughs> all right so uh all said bye everyone
Thank you for listening to Career Talk with OG. Be sure to rate us and let us know what content you want to see on our next podcast. For more information, visit our website at www.aspedaconsulting.com. Thank you.